Well, while you're sitting down, why don't you turn to the book of Romans. And uh, we've been working our way through Romans, this foundational book of the Christian faith that has started revolutions, that started the Reformation, that um, God has used so powerfully over the years. It's kind of been the undergirding force behind what's been going on here at Dillon Community Church for the last five years or so. And finally, we come to the last part of this book, Romans 15, and we'll be starting today in verse 17. Some of you may remember that back in uh, 1843, now a few of you are that old, aren't you? Some of you might remember that. I don't know. Back in 1843, the U.S. Congress voted to spend $30,000, which was, uh, you know, no small sum back then. They voted to spend $30,000 on an experimental telegraph line that ran between Washington and Baltimore. And uh, any of you recall who they gave the money to? His last name starts with M. Samuel Finley Morse. Now that answer came from someone who's not nearly old enough to remember it. Oh, you were there. Okay, you, you found the fountain of youth, I see. Way to go. Let's talk afterwards. But... Um, Samuel Finley Morse, of course, uh, the Morse Code was uh, named after him. The telegraph was his idea in the first place, and the Congress decided to fund this brainchild because they saw such tremendous potential in it. And a year later, after they funded it, on May 24, 1844, Morse sent the first telegraph message. And uh, it was a famous message, like the shot that was heard around the world. Anyone remember what that message was? Yeah. All right, way to go. What hath God wrought? That is, just look at what God has done. Now, that sound, would sound a little strange today, wouldn't it? I, I find it interesting that he should have put it that way. It says a lot about the culture back then versus today. I don't think anyone would have said it today, at least not publicly, not even Christians after some amazing uh, invention. We, we, we don't say such things very often anyway about our scientific discoveries, you know, about our great technological breakthroughs, because we think, we tend to think we've got this scientific worldview, and even Christians sometimes instinctively feel that it's our doing, mostly anyway. We've come a long way from May 24th, 1844. What inspired the statement that day was an assumption. It was an assumption that used to permeate the culture that was far more Judeo-Christian than it is today. What inspired that statement by Samuel Morse was an assumption that ran something like this. Yes, it's my work, but under it and through it and over it and all around it, it's what God hath wrought, right? It's not me, it's ultimately him. Through the talents, yes, that he's given me, but he gave them to me in the first place, right? And through the far more brilliant work of his natural laws that my work depends on. Laws that are his invention and not my invention. I've only discovered and manipulated things and his creation, and, and I've only done that through a mind that came from him in the first place. What I've done is secondary. I've just rearranged his creation through these creative abilities that are his creation too, right? What hath God wrought? That was his assumption as an inventor. And based on that, he may also have meant this. I wouldn't be surprised anyway if he did. That, that Look what God has done through the work of my hand in this telegraph room. 
Okay? I just tapped my finger here and presto changeo. There's a message way over there, hundreds of, uh, of miles away. He's, he has extended my work far beyond anything that lies within my natural capabilities as a person. All I did, really, compared to what he was doing, was lift a finger. We're going to see today that this is the story of our lives when we place them at, at his disposal. It could be a banner over your grave at the end of your life, and all the more so depending on how you respond to the truth from the book of Romans today. It, it can happen in your life big time, starting a week from Tuesday on February 28th, when we're going to go into our 40 days of congregational prayer and fasting, ending the Saturday before Easter. It's, it's something many of you will be saying after 40 days of prayer and fasting, and all of us together, I believe, what hath God wrought? We're at the end now, more on that later, of the last part, again, of the book of Romans. The last of the three main sections of the book. It's a very symmetrical book. It's got three sections, each of which have three parts. And so we're in part three of section three, at long last, where we've been looking at the secret for the last couple of weeks of Paul's passion for ministry. His passion for ministry that, that came from experiencing God's mercy, that is from experiencing the mercies of God. He's presented his body as a living sacrifice. Just like we sang, oh, how he loves you and me. Paul's passion for ministry was the consummation of his love, of God's mercy. His passion for ministry was the consummation of all the doctrine that we've been through starting in verse 1. It's the ultimate application, just as it should be for us. We saw last week that it has to do with uh, having a ministry uh, in the first place, having some area of service where you've chosen to be involved, one that you know is a lofty ministry, as we saw last week, in spite of what may feel like its very lowly appearance. Like it's not that big a deal compared to someone else. This week, we're going to see that the secret of Paul's passion had to do not just with a lofty ministry, but also, secondly, with a lowly identity. A lowly identity. And you find that in Romans 15, starting in verse 17. Let's read it together. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in the things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, except what God hath wrought, right? resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power, in God's power, not my own, of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now, these verses divide very simply and easily into two parts. The secret of Paul's passion... Uh, that we can learn from was a lowly identity that recognized the source of all his fruit and that reveled in the surge that resulted from what he did. We saw last time that 20% of the people do 80% of the work in many churches. And that means that for 80% of all Christians, for all practical purposes, there's still a God-shaped vacuum in them that was supposed to be filled by God. They're still a God-shaped vacuum, even after they become Christians, because though they're filled, it's dead. It's like the Dead Sea. It's not that it, it, nothing's coming out. 
They're, they're, they're reservoirs and not rivers. They're a vacuum of a reservoir like the Dead Sea, not a river, filled but unfulfilled. It's when we serve that we feel the river surge through us. And we say, flow, river, flow. Many of you have experienced that. The secret of Paul's passion was a lowly identity that first recognized the source of that. That's verse 17. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found a reason for boasting in the things pertaining to God. That is, I will not boast in anything pertaining to me. A lowly identity. And then moving on, I will not presume to speak of anything, verse 18a, except what Christ has accomplished through me. He had a lowly identity that recognized the source. You might say that Paul of Sarsus and Samuel Finley Morse were both operating under the same assumption. He's saying, I will not presume to take any credit for what God hath wrought. They both recognized the source. He was almost jealous about that. And he was constantly doing this. He was constantly giving credit where credit was due. And uh, that's why God poured himself out through him, because he knew he'd get the credit. Just listen, Acts 15, 12. And all the multitude kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Acts 21, 19. And after Paul had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Ephesians 3, 7. He talks about the gospel of Jesus Christ, of which I was made a minister of God's grace according to the working of his power. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, that is, my favorite preacher is so-and-so, my favorite minister is someone else, they're like God to me, right? He says, are are we not mere men? We're not God. Don't worship us like that. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe. We're just channels. For I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the graces, this is my father's who's passed away, but he was a pioneering missionary through many countries in Asia, started many missions for the navigators. He, this is his life verse. By 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. Yes, I labored even more than all of us. That's next week, Paul's laboring intensity. But this week, I labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me and through me. 2 Corinthians 3, 4. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who made us adequate. It's a, it's a lowly identity, not a prideful identity that we're talking about here. We're channels only who recognize the source. That is so important. Channels only, blessed master. Remember that old, that old praise song? Channels only, blessed master, but with all your wondrous power flowing through us, you can use us every day and every hour. That's what triggers things. 
That's why, that's why whenever I ascend these steps, I do what Spurgeon used to do, the great prince of preachers back in the, the 18th century. With each step, he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Lord, you're going to have to come through here or it's going to be wood, hay, and stubble. Recognize the source. And then, as we do that, that triggers something that makes it possible for us to revel in the surge, just like Paul did, which is the second part of this very simple passage. Starting in verse 18, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience that he's reveling in what God's doing through, through, what, through, through his making himself available. Resulting, what's the surge? In the obedience of the Gentiles. No one would have conceived that that could happen. By, the, by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of God. He's standing back and his jaw is dropping. The surge. In Paul's case, the surge consisted in three things. First, in the obedience of the Gentiles, as he said, in word and deed, which might not seem like that big a deal uh, to you and me today when, when obedient Gentiles, that is you and me, everyone who's not Jewish, they're like a dime a dozen, right? They're all over the world now. But for the Jews of his day, it was unbelievable that the Gentiles could become a part of that plan, that they would ever repent and, 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 and come over to God's side. So much so that Peter had to be given a vision to prove to him from God that, yes, this is in my plan. The surge, the Gentiles obeying, which he also saw, he said, in the power of signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit who was surging through him. And thirdly, he saw the surge in the spreading of the gospel from Jerusalem. And he said, even roundabout as far as Illyricum. Which means that from Judea in Israel all the way to northern Greece. Which means that in just a few years, he had fully preached the gospel, he says, over a thousand square miles. And he didn't even have a car. He didn't even have a camel. Some would say that the Bible's got to be an error here because how could that happen? How could he have done that? Well, I'll tell you how it happened. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.5. He said, he said our, he's talking to the church at Thessalonica, which is way up in Greece. How did that happen? And then it spread all the way in other areas as a result. He said, our gospel did not come to you in word only. That is, it wasn't just my words. It was just a man thing. But in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in full conviction, there's a surge. Just as you know that we proved to be the right kind of men among you, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and even in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place where your faith toward God has gone gone forth so that we have no need to say anything in all of those thousands of square miles. Unbelievable. It surged through him to them and through them to the whole of Asia Minor uh, and Greece. No wonder he wouldn't presume to speak of anything except what God had accomplished through him. And, And he didn't even know the half of it. Let me just tell you a couple more stories related to the Apostle Paul. Just two examples. Hundreds of years later, a man named Augustine of Hippo read this very letter that Paul had written so long ago. 
the book of Romans. And when he got to Romans 13, 14, the light came on and Augustine became a Christian. And the rest is history. One of the great fathers of the faith. And in good part through Augustine's writings, the gospel spread to Western Europe. And then a thousand years later, a Western European man named Martin Luther read the book of Romans and was converted to Christ as a result. And out of that came the Protestant Reformation. Just think about it. Maybe your ministry feels like Paul's did way back then. He had no idea what was happening. It was all by faith. Think about it. His letters were like an aside in his mind. They were supplemental to his main ministry of visiting churches and being there personally. He did his letters on the backstroke. But look what God did through them. And of course, we just scratched the surface of what God has done through the letters of the Apostle Paul. He only wrote those letters, at least many of them, because he was stuck in prison. Right? Which he thought, you know, and he couldn't be there personally, which he thought would have been much better. He thought writing was second best, if that. A poor substitute for the real thing. Which means we should never underestimate what God does through the little things that we do in secret, in quiet, through your letters, through your secret deeds, through your praying and fasting. Same principle applies there for you too through your unseen, unheralded serving. Reminds me of William Carey's sister. He was William Carey, and if you remember him, some of you do, he was, he's now called the father of modern missions. He laid the foundation. He was, um, and that's no exaggeration. He translated the Bible. He was based out of India into many different translations, single-handedly. He became the model for the likes of Hudson Taylor, who converted China and all these other people. But, my, uh, but not many know that William Carey had a bedridden sister, a bedridden sister who couldn't go to the mission field like she wanted to, so she had to settle for second best. And what was that second best? Well, he'd write long letters to her with all the details of all the things that he needed to be prayed for, all the breakthroughs he needed, the obstacles, the opposition, the miracles he was looking for. And day after day, year after year, decade after decade, she'd just pray. She just lifted her finger to telegraph her messages to heaven. (laughs) through the slender nerve that moves the mighty arm of God, the greatest service of all in a lot of ways. And now, look what God hath wrought through her prayers through William Carey. Many of your ministries are like that, and I say, way to go. Keep it up. God is working. Another woman did the same for Billy Graham way back when he first began. And look what God hath wrought. Which is what many of you are going to be doing through 40 days of prayer and fasting. Paul made the most of some unfortunate circumstances. In a lofty ministry that looked pretty lowly back then, as we saw last week. A ministry to the Gentiles from prison in much affliction without much recognition. Where all he could do was to write letters and to pray passionately. And the Spirit of God surged powerfully for centuries to come. So powerful was the ministry, and so humble was the minister, 
that when he saw just a spark of what God was doing compared to the blaze of what would happen through his ministry for century after century, he just saw a spark. That's our verse for today. So powerful was just that, that he said, I would not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. He recognized the source. He reveled in the surge. And so can you. So have many of you. The same is true for you. You know, long before I ever entered a full-time ministry, I had an experience that was almost a parable of that. It was uh, during a summer job I had that ended up going a little longer than that while I was in graduate school and seminary. I was working as, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say it, or I was back then, I was working at a, as a Kelly girl. Remember, any of you remember Kelly Girl Temporary Help Agency? And uh, it, unfortunately, it was before they changed their name to Kelly Services. I was long gone by the time they did that. You wouldn't believe the grief I'd get when I show up and announce who I was. I was one of the few who knew how to type way back in the 70s, and it was really, you know, I did 80 words a minute, so I was a pretty good secretary, but I was a man. And um, one of my jobs was with a brilliant engineer with Onan Corporation that builds generators in St. Paul. Minnesota. And they had an engineer who would invent all sorts of stuff for them. And his name was Dana Manti. And this guy was a hard-boiled atheist. He was brilliant. And for many months, we would dialogue back and forth about whether Christianity was true. And I just loved talking with him, grew to love him deeply. And it turned out to be longer than a temporary job. But when it finally came to an end, because it had gone so long, I decided before I left, I was just going to give him another quick telephone call to say goodbye. And I was exhausted from packing and getting ready to go off to Trinity Seminary in Chicago. But the Spirit of God made it very clear that he wanted me to put my finger on the telephone dial and call him. And uh, tired though I was. Well, Dana, wouldn't you know it, really wanted to talk. (laughs) And he had a lot of questions about Christianity and wouldn't let me get off the phone. And I was thinking, Lord, why? I am so tired. I've already talked with him so much. And you're going to have to give me something to say. Channel it through me, Lord. Ever prayed that? It's an arrow prayer you shoot up like Peter when he said, save me, Lord, and he saved him from sinking. Arrow prayers can work powerfully at times of need. And pretty soon, I started to feel my heart warm. I knew it wasn't me. The surge was coming very subtly but powerfully. And, and I was speaking words that only could come from him, words he couldn't refute. And it went on for about an hour. And after about an hour, he said, uh, Brian, guess what? I said, what? He said, well... I've hooked you up to my stereo system. I said, oh, have you? (laughs) And I already knew he had quite the system. He was really proud of this thing. It had great fidelity and a lot of watts and all of that. And he said, yeah. And I put the speakers outside. (laughs) Okay? And here's what he said. This whole mobile home park has heard our whole conversation. (laughs) And I said, thank you, Lord, that you helped me. Because I was not capable of living up to that. It was, you know, it was like all of a sudden, smile, you're on candid camera. And, uh, or I guess it was more like, what hath God wrought? Now, why, you know, a hard-boiled atheist would want to broadcast such a conversation, I don't know. To this day, he remained unconvinced by my arguments, even though he couldn't counter them, even though he seemed to enjoy them. And, but he was like as hard as ever. And if it had ended with that, I would have ended up feeling like all of those months of dialogue was a waste of time. Right? But sometimes God gives us a glimpse, just a glimpse 
of what he's really doing. Not often as we may like, but sometimes. And as I hung up the phone that time, I knew in my spirit that though he was unmoved, many others were not unmoved. I just knew it. And I would not presume to speak that night, to this day, of anything except what God had accomplished through me that night. And of course, it's not just for me. That's a parable of this truth, which, is, which happens whenever you open yourself up to minister for him. It's for each of you. You may have heard the story title that all started with a Sunday school teacher. This is one of my favorites. A Sunday school teacher, a Mr. Kimball, in 1858, led a Boston shoe clerk to give his life to Christ. The clerk, Dwight L. Moody, became an evangelist. In England in 1879, he awakened evangelistic zeal in the heart of Frederick B. Meyer, pastor of a small, out-of-the-way church. F.B. Meyer, who ended up becoming a famous man, preaching to an American college campus, brought to Christ a student named J. Wilbur Chapman. Chapman, engaged in YMCA work, employed a former baseball player, Billy Sunday, to do evangelistic work. Sunday held a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina. A group of local men were so enthusiastic afterward that they planned another evangelistic campaign, bringing Mordecai Ham to town to preach. During Ham's revival, a young man named Billy Graham A young man named Billy Graham heard the gospel and yielded his life to Christ. Only eternity will reveal the tremendous impact of that one Sunday school teacher who invested his life in the lives of others and the tremendous impact of that single class. If we only knew If we only had eyes to see the surpassing greatness of his power that's manifested and channeled through us who believe, as Paul said, whenever we, with a lowly identity, trigger that power by placing ourselves at his disposal, if we only knew, I think we'd lift our finger in his service a little bit more. And those who do lift their finger would do so a lot more passionately. So let me encourage those of you who are doing that, whether at the food bank or teaching our children in Sunday school or helping out with Iron Hour or the women's ministry or with this behind-the-scenes benevolence ministry that we've got that we're going to be collecting an offering for in a bit that no one really knows much about or through letters to prisoners, as some of you write, or whatever, though your work may be unnoticed right now, it will not go unamplified maybe to a whole mobile home home part, right? Unmultiplied, unglobalized even. Because he's in the business of multiplying his work through us. The source, the surge. So what's the application? Well, we've seen there are many, and many of you are out there doing it. But under it all, I have never seen him surge remotely like he does it through prayer and fasting. It's the most powerful way to apply our passage for today. In fact, that's what Paul says himself. Just a few verses later in Romans 15, he says, Brethren, strive together with me in your prayers so that God could do this all the more powerfully. 
And it's rare, if ever, that you'll have a chance to piggyback on the 40-day fast of an entire congregation. You talk about a surge as the whole body, the body of Christ, gets out of the way so that He can have His way through us as a body and, and through us individually in areas of our need. There's a synergy that happens when we do it together. That's the power of the body of Christ. You don't have to be alone. Again, it'll start a week from this, from Tuesday, February 28th, first day of Lent, I think, and it will go through the Saturday, the day before Easter, the day before Easter Sunday. It's the best way I know to prepare for Easter. It's the traditional way through what we call the season of Lent, where we give up something to make room for something far better on Resurrection Sunday, the power of His resurrection through us. And it's the best way I know to to prepare, as we've talked about a couple times, for the difficult days that might very likely lie ahead, to come together as a body against the powers of darkness that are assembling themselves even as I'm speaking and that have been in our country and around the world for many years. There's a whole sermon there. And if you weren't here, I'd urge you to listen to the podcast of last week's sermon and the week before, which you can access uh, right up there on our website, and to listen to the message on fasting I gave on October 9th uh, when I went through my own 40-day fast, uh, October 9th of last year. Those messages will get get you up to speed of where we are and of what we're going to be doing. And and, uh, not only those messages, but this book, God's Chosen Fast, is a classic that got me going with fasting 40 years ago. And uh, we ran out of copies, praise God, last week. And so I ordered 30 more, and they're available on the welcome table. They'll show you the biblical basis and some very practical instruction as to uh, exactly why and how we fast. You can sign up on the welcome table to fast a meal a week, you know, over the 40-day period. Or you can fast a day a week over the six-week period, over three days in a row sometime during the 40 days, however God leads you. And God's leading, and it's a wonderful thing to hear about different people to do it in all sorts of different ways. The goal is to fill up each meal as a community, as a body. That means 120 meals. That's how much we normally eat over 40 days. Maybe to fill them up several times over. In fact, we are already doing that. And we still got another Sunday to go of sign up next week before we start, so way to go. Again, we'll be focusing on three things uh, during this fast. Very simply, three things. First, you'll get a spiritual warfare prayer. And by the way, we got a whole other stack of them. We ran out last week, so there's another stack of them on the, wel- on the welcome table. This prayer will help you to take up the armor of God in the evil day in a very practical way. You'll piggyback on the prayer of a man who really knows how to suit up for warfare and to get out there and duke it out with the evil one. It's a prayer that Julie and I have been using for many years. Uh, and the goal will be to pray through this prayer. It takes about 10 or 15 minutes. Very simple. And powerful, pray through this prayer every meal that you sign up to fast. That's what we'll be doing. Um, You'll be duking it out with the powers of darkness, which are the real enemy, not flesh and blood, as Paul tells us. Not people, not politicians, not the economy, you know, not the global uncertainty, important though those things may be. The real enemy is, um, is through it all those who would seek to exploit those things to bring us down spiritually. And so we need to get ready. So first, you'll pray through this prayer every meal that you fast. Second, you'll focus on some issue during those meals, some issue in your life or in the life of a friend or a family member where where you need a breakthrough. 
you know, you, it's like there's this concrete wall in front of you, and you've been trying to blast through it, you've been trying to go up, under, dig under, go around it, and it's still there, and, you're, and you've not gone anywhere. That's often a sign. God is saying, okay, you need to bring out the heavy artillery of prayer and fasting. And so each one of us will be praying, Lord, what do you want? What are you calling me to focus on? It might be your marriage. It might be the marriage of a son or daughter. It's some breakthrough that you deeply, deeply want to see. And then three, we'll be praying for someone to bring to the Easter service. We're going to be shodding our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, which is what we're supposed to do underneath all our spiritual warfare. Remember that in Ephesians chapter 6? And uh, at times like these, when things could get pretty dark, you can't hunker down in your foxhole. You've got to be moving out aggressively, um, not defensively, but offensively. And the way we do that, the most powerful way, is through shodding our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So the third thing is to pray for someone that you can really focus on for 40 days. And they may not come to the service, but I guarantee it, it will have an impact in their life over time. But I believe many will be coming to the service um, as well. Which all this is leading up to. Because the 41st day, Easter Sunday, will be the day we break the fast altogether. To celebrate the resurrected power of Christ that's perfected in our weakness, in our emptiness of fasting. To celebrate the surge. And to launch ourselves together as a body into whatever happens in the months and years to come. And to that end, I would say, just like Paul did in his application for the passage today, brethren, sign up. Brethren, strive with me in your prayers. Let's do it together. And we'll see the great things that God will do. I'll be at the welcome table to answer uh, any questions that, uh, that you might have. But speaking of one powerful way to do this through the Benevolence Ministry, if we could have the, the ushers come forward. One way we have seen, and there's so many stories, God's surge through the DCC is through our Benevolence Ministry where we give to the needy both in our church uh, and in the community. And so if you want to see him multiply your few little loaves and fishes, this is a great place to put them because he does multiply it. It's a great opportunity uh, to put all that we've been talking about uh, into practice. So please give generously.